The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I invite you to open your Bible to John 13. If you're not there already, we will be in verses 21. Yes, going all the way to chapter 14 and verse 1. But to get us started, I actually want to direct your attention to the middle of our passage. Look at verse 30, right smack dab in the middle. Specifically, look at the final four words. There are four seemingly insignificant words tacked on to the end of the verse. And it was night. Like that, that seems to be nothing more than just a mere temporal detail. Like it's night. Thanks for telling us, John, and letting us know. But is that all that the gospel writer is doing right here? I don't, I don't think so. I think that John, our author, is pointing us to something much deeper through this descent of, of darkness. Light and dark have been significant since the very beginning of this gospel. I mean, all the way, chapter 1, verse 4, is where we heard these themes being brought up for the first time. It says this, it says, In him, that's in Christ, was life, and the life was the light. Was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, right from the beginning. Light and dark put right before us, and it continues on as we move throughout the gospel. You get to John chapter 3, and Jesus sits down with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him at night. John tells us that multiple times, at least twice throughout his gospel. Nicodemus came to him at night, and as they sit and talk at night, Christ explains to Nicodemus how people hate the light and love the darkness. By the time we get to John 8 and 9, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 12, we saw Jesus repeatedly calling us to put our faith in him as the light, lest the darkness overtake us. And now, in John 13, as there is a growing spiritual darkness, Jesus is having his final meal with his disciples. As that's going on, as as one of his disciples is conspiring with Satan himself to betray him, As the hour, the hour of Jesus' death that he's been describing all throughout this gospel as approaching as it is now here, as as all of that spiritual darkness descends, John helps us feel it with a physicality. The darkness is descending upon the light of the world, and John draws it in, and it was night. And... And for us, it it leaves this question hanging in the air of will the darkness win? Will the darkness that's descending upon the light of the world, will it overcome the light of the the world? What do we think? What do we, what do you believe about that? That's not a question that you answer with your words. That's a question that we answer with our with our lives. And we're actually going to see Peter, in good Peter fashion, we're going to see Peter in the course of this passage try to answer that question with his words. He's he's going to tell Christ that he will fight alongside him all the way to the end. Even if it cost him his life, he will stand by the light of the world no matter what darkness descends. And Jesus is basically going to say, those are nice words, Peter. 
but your actions are actually going to reveal your true belief that you think the darkness is going to win and you don't want to be on the losing side. This is a question that all of us wrestle with pretty much every day. Cable news plus internet will not allow otherwise. Whether we're talking about on a global scale, the reporting of wars, terrorism, the the events that just unfolded in Manhattan this past week, rumors of, of wars, so whether we're talking about it on a global scale or whether we're talking about it in our own personal lives as, as we deal with family relationships or with serious illnesses and sicknesses or we deal with rebellious children or, or difficult roommates or deadlines or layoffs or death. And all I'm describing to you is things that people in our body were dealing with last week. Whether we're talking about on a global scale or whether we're talking about on a personal scale, we all wrestle with the question, will the darkness win? Look at the words of Jesus to his disciples, to us. As the dark night descends, look at what he says. Look at chapter 14 and verse 1. I included this because we need to hear it. When John wrote this gospel, there was no chapter break. And I think we missed something significant when right on the heels of Christ telling Peter, you're going to deny me three times, you're about to go through your own personal darkest night, I think we miss something significant when right on the heels of that comes, let not your hearts be troubled. In the midst of the darkness descending for Christ and upon his disciples, in the midst of darkness descending upon us and all of our lives, these are the words of Christ, let not your hearts be troubled. And my... My natural response to that is I'm like, well, well, that's easy for you to say, Jesus, because you're Jesus, right? But is it easy for Jesus to say? Look all the way back up to the very beginning of our passage. We're starting in verse 21, John 13 and verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. It's the same Greek word as in 14, verse 1. And that that begs the question for me, when the night comes, why is it okay for Jesus to be troubled, but not us? I mean, like if I'm honest, the fact that Jesus is troubled here makes me more troubled. It makes me think even more that the darkness is going to, to win. Is that what's going on here? Not at all. Right here, through his actions and through his words, Jesus will not only answer the question, will the darkness win? He'll answer that for us. But not only will he answer that, he will also show us how to live when the darkness descends. He'll answer the question about the end for us, but he'll also talk to us about everything between right now and when we get there. Not just whether or not the darkness will win, but how we live when it descends. Because, because here's the deal. Like, even, if, even if the darkness does not win in the end, the disciples still have to make it through the darkness. 
Christ still has to walk through the darkness. This is promised to us all throughout Scripture. Jesus says to these disciples in just a few chapters, John 16 and verse 33, in this world you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. Paul in Acts 16 says to to these new Christians, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In both of those situations, Jesus and Paul are trying to be encouraging. Jesus says, I tell you this so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. Acts 16.22, Paul has said to be encouraging and strengthening the disciples. And so he says to them, through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. And I think that's what's going on right here. Jesus knows that you, me, his disciples, we, we must live through the darkness, the night, and he wants us to know how that's possible, what that looks like. Will the darkness win? And even if not, how do we live when the darkness descends? Those are our two questions. Let's start answering them. We begin in verse 21. Verses 21 to 32, I think, are going to tackle that first question for us. Will the darkness win? Look at verse 21 with me. It says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So if you can remember to the last time we were together in John chapter 13, Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet, and he's told all of them to serve one another with the same type of self-sacrificial, humble love that he's just put on display. But after saying that, after doing that, and saying that, love each other like this, he's troubled in his spirit because he knows they will not all love each other in this way. He he knows that there is one among them at that exact moment plotting to do the exact opposite. Judas is plotting betrayal. Does that mean the darkness is winning? Is that why Jesus is troubled in his spirit? No, not at all. Look at Jesus' first two words again. Truly Truly. Jesus has, has used those words, he's used that phrase all throughout the gospel. We've described it as being like a mic drop on the front end of the speech. For all of uh, the, the non-millennials out there, a mic drop is when someone gives a really amazing speech and they're done and it's like the exclamation point. Boom! That was awesome. Jesus does that on the front end. He's like, pay attention. What I'm about to say, it's a way of drawing attention to what he's about to say. It's big, it's important. He wants us to, to see something, to grasp onto something right here. And he wants us to pay special attention to the fact that someone's about to betray him. Why? He's actually already told us why. Go back up to verse 19. In verse 19, Jesus says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place. In other words, I'm telling you that I'm going to be betrayed before it happens so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. A lot of your English versions will say that I am he. He's not there in the Greek. He just says that you may believe that I am. I'm telling you this so that when it happens, you may believe that I am that I am. I am am the God over all. All And this was a part of my sovereign plan. I'm telling you this beforehand so that when it gets here, you'll know this didn't catch me by surprise. 
Things aren't tumbling out of control. I wasn't caught off guard. The darkness isn't winning. I'm sovereign over this. I'm ruling over this. Truly, truly, I tell you, this is going to happen. The darkness is going to descend. I tell you that so that when it does, your faith in me may be increased. I tell you that so that you may believe. Do do you see that? I'm telling you this so that when it happens, your faith will be increased so that you will believe because things are happening exactly like I said they would. So don't let the darkness crush your faith. Let it increase it. Shades, do you feel the implications of that for us? How, How often in our own lives, when darkness enters, when difficulty enters, sickness, death, how often does that crush our faith? When Christ says it should do the opposite, it should confirm it. Because he told us this was coming. In this world you will have many tribulations. Fear not, take heart, I've overcome the world. Through many tribulations you must enter into the kingdom of God. Brothers, do not be surprised at all when the fiery trial comes upon you. As though something strange were happening to you. When, when the darkness descends, don't let it kill your trust in Christ. Let it seal it. Build it. Increase. Let, let the fact that the darkness descends convince you it won't win. Because it's only doing what he said it would do. He's in charge. He's in control. This is evidence of it. He wins. This becomes even more obvious when we get to verse 22 through 27. Look at it. Verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Like they're in stunned silence here, which none of us quite understand why they're in stunned silence. We think it would be obvious to spot Judas, right? Have you ever looked at Christian artwork of the disciples? Like it is so easy to pick out Judas. I love the church I grew up in. They would do this Easter drama every year, and I loved it. I was fascinated by it. Judas, so easy to find. Like furrowed eyebrows, devil goatee. Like Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. They're all like, oh, it's furrowed eyebrows down there. <laughs> oh, Jesus, Judas, Judas blended in. They're stunned. They're in, they're in silence. So verse 23. Excuse me. Yeah. The disciples, they looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, I believe this is John, our author, We'll come back in just a minute and talk about why he describes himself this way as a disciple that Jesus loved. Just hang on to that for a second. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter, who's already stuck his foot in his mouth once, doesn't want to do it again, but he's going to in just a few more verses. But right here, he just he motions to John, saying, ask Jesus who he's talking about. So... That disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. That was something that a host would often do to an honored guest. It was one last extension of love from Christ to Judas. And what is a symbol of Christ's love will become a symbol of judgment. So when he had dipped the morsel and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, Then after he had taken the morsel, 
Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. So Jesus has this private conversation with John. I think that it's a private conversation because when you look at verses 28 and 29, all the disciples are still clueless. They have no idea what's going on with Judas. John leans back to talk to Jesus' private conversation right there. And and in that, everything about that conversation says, I am in control. I'm over this. I'm I'm sovereign. Jesus, Jesus calls out exactly who's going to betray him, Judas. And, and even when we are told that Satan himself enters into Judas, which, by the way, that's the only place I know of in the Bible where it's ever said that Satan literally takes possession of a human being. I mean, if ever there was a moment for Satan to be in control, this is it. And yet, Jesus is the one giving commands. Do you see that? What you're going to do, do quickly. I'm in charge. I'm going to tell you what to do. And I'm even going to tell you how to do it. Jesus is in complete control. The night descends, but it doesn't win. Is that not exactly what we see in the next two verses? Verses 30 and 31. Look at it with me. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. Darkness complete. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Good golly, that's a lot of glory. Night descends, and Jesus says, now, this moment Right now, I am glorified. I'm glorifying my Father through everything that I'm doing because it's according to his plan. And he is glorifying me. There's a bunch of triune conspiracy going on right here for glory. By the time we get to chapter 14, 15, 16, Jesus is going to bring the Holy Spirit into the mix. It's a conspiracy of the Trinity for the glory of God. Jesus says it's It's happening now. Amidst the night shines glory bright. So so my children uh, all still don't like the dark. And uh, often, uh, one of them or more of them have to get up in the middle of the night in order to use the restroom. There's a problem because all of the rooms are upstairs and mine and my wife's room are downstairs. And to ask me, to get up in the middle of the night and go upstairs just hits the limit of parental love. I'm sorry, that's, that's just where it stops, right there. Um, I'm kidding. But we got one of those night lights for the, for the hall bathroom, you know, the kind that like when the light's on, it's off, and when the light's off, it's on, it's got one of those little sensors on it. Except it doesn't work. It just stays on all the time. Sensor doesn't work at all. But here's the deal. You wouldn't know that if you just came over and you were in that restroom and the lights on. You, you wouldn't know that. Like even though the bulb is shining with all of its brightness that it can muster, it's, it just kind of blends into the surroundings. But when, when you turn out the light, all of the darkness actually serves to reveal 
the brightness of the bulb. The bulb didn't get any brighter. It was shining with all of its brightness. The darkness serves it amidst the night shines glory bright all of this darkness that we are seeing right here actually serves to reveal the brightness of Christ's glory that's what i mean when i say he's sovereign over the darkness he's in control i'm not saying that he is guilty of everything sinful going on satan's responsible for what he does judas is responsible for what he does the romans responsible for what they do the jews responsible for what they do we're responsible for what we do and god is sovereign over all of it and gets the glory for every ounce of good that's going to come out of it god is sovereign man is responsible don't cut the tension hold it and we see it stressed right here the darkness doesn't win it actually serves jesus's purposes in shining forth his glory all the brighter jesus isn't getting brighter he already had all this glory the brightness he already possessed is now made manifest shades the same is true for you When the darkness descends in our lives, it is precisely that moment when we can say, now, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now is God lifted high in my life. Amidst my night, His glory shines bright. When when sickness and suffering enter into your life, And you cling to Christ. Regardless of whether you experience healing or death, regardless, when you cling to Christ, you display his glory to the world. His value, his goodness, his greatness, his beauty. It's worth more to you than health and life itself. When when you find yourself jobless, financial troubles are pouring in you lose your house you lose your possessions and you hold on to jesus you shine forth his glory that he is more beautiful more great more glorious worth more than anything that you own when when your life hits rock bottom and you don't know how there is is any possible way to recover But you've got Jesus, and he's enough. You shine forth his glory to the world. Shades, when each of us faces death itself, no matter our age, no matter the circumstances, but when we die confessing Christ is worth more than life, amidst that night shines glory bright. This is what Jesus says. The night descends, and he says, now. This moment, when Judas and Satan move to quickly kill me, now my glory shines. The darkness doesn't win. It merely serves him and the brightness of the glory of Christ. So, what does that look like in our lives? Like, how do we do that? When the darkness descends, how do I live so that 
the glory of Christ shines bright. Like, I, I get that the darkness won't win in the end, but I've still got to get to that end. Like Jesus knows the cross is not his end. He knows that resurrection comes on the other side. He still must go through the cross. And anyone who would follow after him must take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow him. We enter the kingdom through many tribulations. Like We may know that, that the darkness doesn't win in the end, but we still got to get to that end. So how, how do we live right now when the darkness descends so that Christ gets the glory? This is precisely what Jesus unfolds for his disciples. Really, over the next couple of chapters, we're going to see how he begins to unfold it right here in verse 33. Look at it with me. Verse 33 to 35. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. By this, in the midst of the night, you'll shine my glory bright. All people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. How do we live when the darkness descends? I've got four things for you. Firstly, live loved. Live loved. Did, did you notice how Jesus addresses the disciples right here? We should notice because it's, it's the only time he does it. it. He may call them children in other places, but this is an entirely different Greek word underlying this. That's why in the English they bring it out as little children. He tells them, I'm about to go away, and, and, and he speaks to them with this term of endearment, this term of of love. Rarely ever used in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the only other place it's primarily used is in 1 John. A letter written by the author of, of this gospel. Is that a coincidence? I, I, don't, I don't think that it is. If you go to 1 John, this is one of John's favorite terms to call the people he's pastoring. The people to whom he's writing. They're his congregation. They're his little children. I don't think that it's a coincidence that the only other place it shows up is right here on the lips of Jesus. I think, I think that in this moment, one of the darkest moments in John's life, had to be, Jesus just said he was going away. They're not going to be able to follow where he goes. That's all John had been doing for three years. And John was most likely the youngest of all of these disciples. He was probably a teenager, and we all know that age 14 to 17 or age 17 to 20 is an eternity. So all John's been doing his whole life is following Jesus. Now Jesus says, you cannot follow where I go. This had to be the darkest moment he had known up to that point. And in that moment, when John's heart is so troubled, Jesus reassured him and all of the other disciples of his love. They were, they are his little children. I don't think John ever got over this. I think it shaped his life from then on. So much so that when he penned this gospel, he never even included his own name. He simply referred to himself, as we saw in verse 23, as a disciple 
whom Jesus loved. I don't think John refers to himself that way because he's trying to put himself up on some kind of pedestal. I don't, I don't think John thinks Jesus loved him more than all of the other disciples. No, I think that he just cannot get over the fact that he's loved by Christ. So when he pins this gospel, he doesn't want to be the point. He wants Christ and his love to be the point. Christ and his love to be lifted up. I'm a, I'm a little child. In the midst of the darkest moment of his life, Christ is affirming his love for him. So for the rest of his life, as he goes through countless moments of darkness, what returns to his mind? I'm loved by Christ. I'm loved by Christ. And that shapes him. When he writes his first epistle to these Christians, and as they're struggling and going through darkness, what does he say to them? You're my little children. You're loved, dearly loved. It shapes him for the rest of his life. Shades. Even in the midst of our darkest nights, let this truth ring in our ears. You are disciples of Christ, loved by Christ. You are his little children. That's what we got to become in order to be able to follow where it is that he's going to lead these disciples and us. In the, in the midst of the darkest night for Christ, in the midst of his darkest night, it was his priority for you to know how much he loves you little children amidst the night when you are most tempted to think you are unloved remember this you are the little children of god through christ live loved amidst the night secondly how are we to live when the night descends live loving don't just live loved live Loving. Jesus is about to depart. Tells his disciples they can't follow. Up until this point, that was the way that people knew they were his disciples. They followed him around. Oh, look, they're like ducklings following Jesus. They're, they're his disciples. They follow him. So now Jesus is leaving. How are people going to know that they are his disciples? That they belong to him? Jesus tells them, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That's not a new commandment. That's as old as Leviticus 19, at least, where we're told to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's not the new part. What he says next is the new part. You're to love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The mark of Jesus' disciples as they live through this world amidst any amount of darkness, the mark is that they love one another like they have been loved. How have they been loved? He's loving them amidst the night, amidst the descending darkness. He's not letting go of them. He's not abandoning them. He's holding on to them. He's, he's loved. Do we do that? Do we love each other amidst the dark when it's hardest? When it's most difficult? He's loving them self-sacrificially. This isn't for his own gain. He's laying down his life. Do, do we love each other self-sacrificially? I hear a lot of people talk about how they love Jesus but not his church. John would tell you that's impossible. Why? Because the church is the bride of Christ. 
And what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. You don't get to divorce them, and neither do I. The evidence that we love Jesus is that we love his church. And typically when people say, I love Jesus but not the church, they go on to point out all the problems within the church and disagreements and politics and petty arguments and gossiping and backbiting and using cute phrases like, the church are the only ones who shoot their wounded. I actually rejoice that such people can be part of the church because it means there's room for someone like me. I am a gossiping, backbiting, petty arguing, disagreeing, politicking, problem causer. And there is grace for me and for you. The fact that the church is full of broken people who will hurt one another is the very reality that gives us opportunity to practice Jesus' command. To love each other like he loved us when we didn't deserve it, when we betrayed, when we abandoned, when we sinned, when we wronged. That's how he loved us. The fact that we're going to do that to each other provides opportunity to demonstrate the gracious love of Christ. I'm not saying it's easy. As a matter of fact, I would say it's impossible. It's impossible for us to love like Christ, to live loving like Christ. Peter is about to figure that out in another open mouth, insert foot situation. Look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Remember, he said he's going away. They can't follow. Where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. In other words, before the night is out, you will have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus tells Peter, you can't follow me right now. It's impossible for you to do that, Peter. It's impossible for Peter to follow Jesus right now for at least two reasons, I think. One, only Jesus can do what is about to be done. Only Jesus can go to the cross and bear sin for all our forgiveness. Only Jesus can conquer death. Peter, you can't follow Christ because he's about to do what he alone can do. But I think there's a second reason that it's impossible for Peter to follow Jesus right now. Namely, Peter doesn't have the power in himself to follow Christ into the darkness. No, right now, in the safety of the room they're in and in the safety of being in the presence of the light of the world, right now his words come easy. But out there, in the night, in the darkness, Peter's Peter's actions will betray the fact that he thinks the darkness is going to win and he doesn't want to be on the losing side. Peter doesn't have the power. He's going to deny Christ three times. He doesn't have the power in himself 
to follow Christ into the darkness. He cannot love like Jesus loves, sacrificing himself, laying down his life for Christ. Did you notice that bit of irony from Jesus right there? Would you lay down your life for me? Like, really, is that the way this is going? Like, no, that's not what's happening right now. I'm laying down my life for you. That's, that's the way this is about to unfold. can't do it. It's impossible. So how is Peter, or how are we supposed to live loving? Loving like Jesus. How are we, how's Peter going to keep Christ's new command and, and amidst the night and the darkness shine his glory bright by loving like he loves? How? This is the third thing that we need to see. Thirdly, we must live trusting. How are we to live when the night descends, we must live trusting. Jesus doesn't say that Peter will never follow him into the darkness. He says just not now. Look, look, look again at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterwards. After I go into the dark. After I go the way of the cross, after I make a way for you, after I purchase forgiveness for your sins, after I send the Holy Spirit to dwell in you and empower you, after I go to prepare a place for you beside my Father for all eternity, that's exactly what he's about to say in chapter 14, after I prepare the way, I will empower you to follow after me, to deny yourself. Take up your cross and through many tribulations enter into the kingdom of God. Can't follow Christ now because Christ's work isn't done. But afterwards, after Christ's work is done and he's bought forgiveness, he's bought the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, he's bought all these things for Peter and for us, then by Christ's power so that Christ gets the glory, we can follow him into the dead of night loving like he loves because it's actually his love. That the call right here to love like Christ's love is not a call to imitate Jesus and imitate his love. It's a call to participate in his love. He's going to the cross so that by the Holy Spirit you may be united to him. And Romans 5.5 tells me that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The very love of Christ is going to be poured out into my heart through the Holy Spirit so that I can enter into the darkness, the dead of night, loving like he loves because it's his love. This is, this is why Jesus can make the conclusion by this, all people will know you're my disciples, that you have this kind of love for one another. Because you couldn't have it if you weren't my disciples. The world doesn't understand this kind of love. It comes from Christ and from, from Christ alone. Peter, you can't follow me now, but you will afterwards. And that is exactly what happens in Peter's life. Peter will be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to follow Christ into the dead of night. Just read the book of Acts. He goes into persecutions and beatings and imprisonments all on the way to his own death. He will follow Christ, trusting him to provide everything that he needs. Peter will live out chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe, trust Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
How would Peter and the disciples walk through the darkness untroubled? By trusting Christ. Trusting His promise that the darkness doesn't win. Believing that He loves them even when they can't see Him. How would they live loving the church self-sacrificially? I mean, Peter and the other disciples, they do that. They love the church self-sacrificially. They literally die for other people, for you and me to know Christ. How? Through trusting that Jesus had purchased every ounce of power they needed for every moment of their lives. They lived trusting. They lived by faith. They lived like little children. This is how my kids live. By faith. Faith that when they wake up in the morning, mom and dad are there. Faith that breakfast is there. Lunch and supper too, if they're lucky. Kidding. Someday, somebody's going to take like a recording of these sermons and chop it all up and submit it to like DHR and it's going to be a bad day for me. This is how my children live. It's how we live. Galatians 2.20, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us, his little children, and gave himself up for us to empower us to love as he loves. We're going to unpack this a lot more in the weeks to come, but, but right now, don't miss this. We live loved and loving by trusting Christ. This is how we walk through the darkness with untroubled hearts. And when I say that, I got one more clarifying note for you because I told you there were four things right and I've only given you three. When I say that, that this empowers us to walk through the darkness with untroubled hearts, I don't mean that the darkness doesn't trouble us in any respect. We're getting all the way back around to where we began. When Christ tells us, let not your hearts be troubled, he doesn't mean that the darkness isn't troubling. Think all the way back to verse 21. Christ himself was troubled. There's a sense in which the darkness troubled him, and there's a sense in which the darkness should trouble us. Which is it? We're troubled or untroubled is the fourth and final thing we need to see about how to live amidst the darkness. We live troubled and untroubled. And both bring glory to Christ. How? Glad you asked. I actually think it's rather simple to see the difference. If, if you look back to verse 21, why is Jesus troubled there? Is it, is it from a lack of belief? A lack of faith in, in his sovereign father? Does he doubt his father's sovereign goodness and, and plan that it's actually going to work for his glory? No, not at all. We saw that Christ constantly, he constantly was restating his trust in his father, his concrete confidence that now, amidst the darkness, is when he will be glorified. Like, like Jesus is not troubled from a lack of belief or faith or trust. So what's troubling him? You look at verse 21, the very next words out of his mouth are about Judas and what he's about to do. This, this man, Judas, Jesus loves him. He called him. 
Judas has followed him. He loves him. He cares about him. And Judas is being destroyed by sin and Satan. Jesus is troubled in his spirit by the destruction that sin brings. He's troubled by the destruction that sin brings on his creation, especially upon his people. We've seen this before in Christ. If you think back to John chapter 11 when Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus and he sees Mary weeping and he sees the people weeping, we're told there that he's troubled in his spirit. Same Greek word. He's troubled in his spirit. He he was troubled and he grew angry by the havoc wreaked by sin and death. This is a holy troubling of the spirit that honors and glorifies God because he is troubled at this with us. Shades, when you go through the darkness, when you stare death in the face, when you face sickness and illness or difficulties or trials or any of these things, it is okay for your spirit to be troubled for the world should not be this way. We should be angry at Satan and his attempts to steal kill and destroy. Angry at sin and death and the havoc that it, that it wreaks. But shades, I would plead with you, don't do what so many of us do automatically. Don't grow angry with God. He's, he's on your side, angry with you at sin and death. And he's there to do something about it. Don't grow angry at the only one who can do something about what has angered you. Now, if you do get angry at God, be honest with him about it. Don't compound it by lying to him that you're not angry with him. Be honest. The psalmists are honest. I plead with you, don't grow angry with God. No, when the darkness descends, actually let it increase your trust in him. For he's told us that the darkness will come. And he has gone through it all before us. He has borne it all for us. He has conquered it all to empower us all the way to the end when he makes all things new and the darkness is no more. When you walk through darkness, let your holy troubled spirit be coupled with an untroubled heart that wholly trusts in God. Let's say that one more time. When you walk through the darkness, let your holy, troubled spirit that's angry at sin and death, a righteous anger, a right anger that, that wants God to fix things is an anger that glorifies God. It's righteous. Let your holy, troubled spirit be coupled with, a, with an untroubled heart that wholly trusts in God. I trust that you are going to give me everything I need to make it through this darkness all the way to the end. I trust that you are going to make all things new. Live troubled and untroubled. As 2 Corinthians 4 would put it, we are afflicted but not crushed, troubled and untroubled. We are are perplexed but not driven to despair, troubled but untroubled. We are persecuted but not forsaken, troubled but untroubled. Struck down but not destroyed, troubled but untroubled. And 2 Corinthians 6 says it most beautifully, we are sorrowful, troubled, sorrowful, but we are always rejoicing, untroubled. Always rejoicing because we know the darkness doesn't win. John has proclaimed that good news of the gospel to us since chapter 
1 and verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Christ defeated the darkness once for all on the cross. He's, he is the light who has conquered. We sing that glorious truth, don't we? There in the ground his body lay, light of the world, by darkness slain, but then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose. Again, shades, hear the good news of the gospel. The darkness doesn't win. Not in your life, not in my life, not in this world. Sin doesn't win. Sickness doesn't win. Satan doesn't win. The darkness doesn't win. Christ is the light of the world, and he will empower us to live out his light right now, knowing that he will one day banish all darkness and bring in his light to reign forever. Revelation 22, verses 4 and 5. We will see his face and night will be no more. We will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So now, amidst the darkness, live loved, live loving, live trusting, and live troubled, yes, but untroubled. Shades, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in his Son, our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.